0: I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500 episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com.
1: As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns.
6: Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase.
4: Normally being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra.
0: Ted, welcome to The Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us.
2: Thank you for the opportunity. Happy to be here.
0: Yeah. So I uh, have come across you uh, in numerous forms. We've met at Podcast Movement. Uh, you have been a longtime listener of our show. But really what intrigued me was that you just had this crazy, completely insane story uh, of how you got to where you're at. And rather than give it away for our listeners, uh, why don't you tell us a bit about yourself, the journey, the story, and the background and how you got to where you're at today?
2: Absolutely. So I want to start with where I'm at now. I have a successful personal training business. I work mostly with uh, CEOs of multi-million dollar companies, very high performance individuals. I've had the opportunity to meet and train Robert Downey Jr., Ricky Martin, and even Sir Richard Branson not too long ago. Uh, I also have started a podcast. I'm huge into this alternative form of media that's literally an alternative from all the doom and gloom news out there that serves people in no way whatsoever, just serves basically the advertisers. So I'm I'm very passionate about that. And I'm about to put on an event, a transformational event for men uh, here in my hometown, Miami. I'm going to start these these transformational events. So I'm really, really pumped in about what I'm doing in life and how I'm able to serve other people. But it didn't start out that way at all. And uh, I have, like you mentioned, a very intense, a very wild, crazy, uh, sad story in, in, in a way. So I'll get to it. When I was, uh, I grew up in Miami. I was born to a uh, attorney father and a school teacher, mother. And very early in my life, I started uh, having a hard time. My mother, after my sister's birth, so when I was about two years old, uh, she had something, the pregnancy of my sister caused a physiological change in her and she became very mentally ill to the point where uh, she's, th- there was abuse, physical and emotional. Some of the Uh, babysitters that my sister and I had called the family and home services. I'm not sure what it's called because, you know, it's been so long, but they called the family services, the department of family services to come in and check out what was going on. And I don't really remember that. That was told to me later on. And uh, so, and she chose me to abuse, not my sister, so that started out really rough for me and uh, and for my father too, he had to divorce from his wife and it became a very complicated situation. I ended up living with my dad. my sister lived with my mom and I was a tough kid to deal with. I remember throwing fits and breaking things at four years old and my dad was going to work and I was just you know in retrospect it's it's hard to imagine. You know, he's such a strong individual the way he put up with this this uh, crazy kid. You know, it wasn't crazy because something was necessarily wrong with me, but because of what I'd been through with my, my mom. And so that's how things started out. They started to get better as I grew up, but I was a very awkward kid, shy, had uh, problems with self-esteem. So you might imagine the one person who's supposed to, care for you and who actually brought you into this world, your mother, uh, violated uh, trust between us. So, um, you know, I'm saying that in retrospect, but at the time I was just angry, sad, scared of the world, scared of people. And uh, things started to get better, but I was still pretty troubled. And when I was 14, she passed away. And it left a lot of unresolved issues because we were they were divorced so I'd go over and see her every other weekend And that particular weekend that she died um, I was supposed to go over there but i I just going over there was so difficult she was heavily medicated she didn't work she smoked cigarettes like crazy and she smoked in the house and it just smelled like smoke it was just a hard hard experience for me as a kid and and what I did, I just turned on the TV when I went over there and then I went out skateboarding. I just escaped from it. And my sister tried to be the good person in that relationship. And she'd go to church with my mother and try to spend time with her. I just wanted I, I didn't. The only thing I wanted her to do is to go out and buy me toys, then leave me the hell alone. And uh, but but even that I, I wanted I didn't want anything to do with her that weekend. I just I just needed a break. And she ended up dying in a car crash. And the the specifics of it are really strange. She ended up running a a police roadblock late at night where it's, why is she driving? And I felt, for for many years, I felt guilt because I felt like my sister and I were the two things she cared the most for in life. That's We were all she had in life. And uh, she looked, her whole life was based around us visiting her. And I took that away from her and I feel... Still feel um, you know responsible to some some degree, and so I went into high school. It, it was you know, I was kind of recovering before, but now it just sent me over the edge. I ran away from home, stole my dad's car, and what I, I guess I failed to mention earlier was that my dad married uh, when I was six years old, my dad married my stepmom, and they ended up having a child together when I was uh, nine. Uh, nine years old. And uh, so it was me and my, my sister, who was two years younger than my brother, who is nine years younger than me. But uh, so th- there, was, there was a lot of trouble there. I don't want to go too in depth, but I ran away from home, uh, stole their car. I got in trouble at school. This is all when I was 14, uh, right after my mom died, my biological mother. And I ended up coming back home, but they put me in a special class because I just, I was so out of control emotionally. It was called severely emotionally disturbed. That was the name of the class SED. Not great, but, uh, it allowed me to get through high school. And after that, I started pulling myself together and I I was never a good student in high school. I was, I was a total rebel. I didn't care about my grades. I, I just wanted to have a good time. And, uh, you know, I was very angry and sad and uh, confused. I, I, you know, my dad was a great provider, but he wasn't there a lot for me. He was off working, doing cases, and he provided financially for us, but wasn't around a lot. And he, and when he was, he he spent ma- the majority of the time with my stepmom. And my stepmom had huge issues between uh, caring for us, the the children of a previous marriage of another woman and caring for her son. And uh, J- Jimmy and I never, well, we had some issues, but it was more like brother, brother issues, you know, just sibling issues, the normal stuff that kids have. And so I started pulling it together after I graduated high school and I went to college My grades were so poor that I could only do the two-year thing, but it didn't matter. Something in me, something sparked in my mind, and I, I had a direction I was going in. I want I really wanted to study cognitive neuroscience. And I was fascinated from my experience with drugs and my experience with mental illness from my mother. I was fascinated how the brain creates our behavior, creates our thoughts makes us feel like we want to do certain things or, or or compels us to do certain things. I was fascinated by it. And before that, I was really into, into psychology, but seeing biology and what the brain does and how powerful it is, it was like, okay, well, psychology comes after physiology. And, uh, th- that, and that'll be important because that will tie in later to what uh, I ended up doing. But so, when I was 19, I was in school, I was getting straight A's, I was reading books about drugs in the brain, the physiology of the brain, how it how it affects behavior, and I was going through my typical classes and I was doing very well. But when uh, when I was 19, so I'm only maybe a year and a half into school, a few semesters into school, my parents go on vacation and my buddy who grew up down the street, we were high school friends. He was going to be watching my brother. And I was like, hell, my parents are out of town. And, uh, you know, my buddy's watching my brother. I'm going to go down there. I'll say, you know, hang out with my brother a little bit, but I was really going down to, to party with my friend. We were going to have a good time. And so I skipped school that day. And when I got down there, My brother was nowhere to be found and neither was my friend. My brother's piano teacher was waiting for him and he hadn't showed up yet. And if it was me, it would have been totally understandable given my previous record of bad behavior. But my brother was the kid who did everything right. He was the kid who pleased mommy and daddy. And for him not to do that was very strange. I didn't worry about it at first, but I did call my parents. And when I called them, they were worried instantly, especially my stepmother. And they were like, that's it, we're coming home. Because they were at, they were on vacation a few hours away in, in a different part of Florida. And they they came home right away. And uh it took them a few hours, and during that few hours, Jim didn't show up. He's still missing, and it started to get uh it started to get really like well, what happened to him? This is totally unlike him. We went to his friends' houses, called his friends where, where he would hang out. He wasn't there. My friend showed up eventually, and he was late. He was running late from work, getting off of work, and he's still nowhere to be found. My parents get there. The police are called. There's a search for him, and uh, he's still nowhere to be found. And They're looking everywhere now. They have a helicopter out. They have. Cops driving around looking, and he's still nowhere to be found. And at first, the cops were like, "Ah, oh, he's probably just hiding." It's like, "No, you don't understand. Jimmy doesn't do that. He doesn't do this at all. He doesn't act out in this way. Never have, and there's no reason to think he would start now." And it—he never showed up that day. Then days turned into weeks, and. The FBI got involved like they do with every missing children's case. I was interrogated because of the fact, like I said, I, I came down, I skipped school. It looked kind of strange to them that I had skipped school that day simply to come down and hang out. Although for me, it's like, well, of course, you know, I'm going to party at my big, my, my parents' big house and have a good time with my buddy. Well, while they're not around, it seems pretty uh, straightforward, but I was interrogated. I was, uh given lie detector tests. I would call, they they gave me a card and said, hey, listen, if you remember anything strange, anything out of the ordinary, you call us. And a couple of times I did. I was with my buddy, who they also interrogated and, and treated him like a suspect, as they did the rest of the family, but particularly us, because we were there and it, it seemed suspicious to them, right? Whatever. Uh, and they're doing their job. And uh, so... I would call them maybe late at 10, 10 p.m., and they didn't want to hear anything about what I had to say about a creepy neighbor who lived nearby or anything. They're like, okay, yeah, okay, great, great. Where are you? Where are you right now? And they just show up. You know, that was before the days of cell phones and getting triangulating and the, the location of someone and just showing up unannounced. But I gave them the address and... They would show up and they'd search everything and they'd ask us questions and that went on for a while, for weeks, and eventually nothing showed up after searching through where I lived and where my friend lived and searching for blood and searching for just going through all my car and uh, going through his car and just searching everything they could. They never found anything. And it was so funny. Uh, you know, we we were smoking weed. That's what we did. We just it got to the point. You know, of course you're you're like a 19 year old kid. You're smoking weed, and FBI is coming over. You hide that stuff, man. But it got to the point where I didn't even care anymore. I'm like sitting there with the bong on the table or the pipe or the whatever, and I just didn't care. It was such an intrusive, tough period of time. So eventually, they went away. They didn't find anything. Metro got involved, the Metro Police, uh, Miami-Dade Metro Police Department. They took over and they did some of the same things, but they were a little bit more. They weren't so interested with me, although uh, I did have to take another lie detector and I had to write some things out. And, um, you know, that didn't turn up anything for them either. And they really started getting, uh, getting a little desperate. It it turned into a crazy media show outside. I I didn't mention earlier, but all the local news was, uh, camped outside our house every single day during that time. My, my parents, because of their high profile nature, my biological mother was a a school teacher, but my stepmother was a, a tax attorney for the federal government. And my dad had, had, uh, you know, his business had even improved more and he was working for himself. So they were high profile people. And for a kid to go missing like that for, from these high profile people, it, it made more of a uh, made, a, I guess, a better newsworthy story. And they ended up meeting presidents and, and changing laws about who can put up missing uh, posters in federal buildings. Because before you couldn't, they were on Oprah. They uh, they they did all these shows and trying to promote like, hey, listen, we need to care about everyone's missing children. But still, Jimmy was nowhere to be found. And then after three months of this hell. And uh, that's what it was because I had stopped going to school. I uh, I I wasn't taking good care of myself. I felt, and I wasn't sleeping well. And, uh, you know, it was literally hell. And uh, we found out what happened three months later. So he went missing on uh, September uh, 11th, actually. So that date has a different meaning for me uh, apart from just what happened in New York. And three months later from from September 11th, and this was about twenty years ago, I'm thirty eight, in case you were wondering. But we I got a call in the middle of the night. Must have been three, four in the morning. And it was very strange because people don't usually call you at that time, so I answered. And it was the FBI, and he told me, uh, I didn't recognize which agent it was because we we <laughs> known them pretty well. We had developed uh, relationships with them uh by that point but he's like Ted we found Jim and your parents need you and i was still asleep and i was i was i asked him i was like well is he okay is you found Jim is, is he okay and i can't remember exactly but i almost remember him almost laughing a little bit not in a ha 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 way but he was like <laughs> listen, your parents need you. And he, he, I don't even remember if he gave me the answer or not, but I went I went over to my parents. I got up, went over there immediately, and we found out what happened. And what ended up happening was Jim was coming home from his bus stop that day, which was down the block, And in that area where we lived, the blocks were pretty big, so it was maybe, I don't know, the better part of a mile, let's say. And a a man in a pickup truck pulled up as he was walking home very aggressively, pulled out a gun and held it at him and said, do you want to die? And my brother said, no. And he said, well, then get in the car, get in the truck. And as he started to get in, he grabbed him to the floor and threw him, slammed the door, took off. And he took him to a trailer not very far from where I live, maybe maybe a mile and a half, two miles away. And he raped him. He tortured him. And after a few hours of that, and this is all that day he went missing it didn't happen over days it was all that day that we were looking for him so after a few hours of of being raped being tortured my brother hears the helicopter overhead and no must know that we're searching for him he's old enough at nine years old to know and he heard them heard the helicopter and decided even after everything he had been through, he was going to make a run for it. A little run for his life. And he started running. The guy pulled out the gun, shot him through the chest. The bullet pierced his heart. He fell to the ground. And that man walked up to him and listened to his dying last breath. And... The reason I know all that detail is because three months later, a woman was missing some jewelry and a gun. And this is someone who lives in in our neighborhood, very close to us. And she had a handyman living on her property and, and working for her. So while he was gone, she went into his trailer and found the gun that was missing, but she also looked around more and she opened a closet in the trailer and there was a child's book bag in it and she opened the book bag and the books in it said the name Jimmy Rice and this was after he had been missing for a while. So she knew that name. She had seen the posters She had heard about Jimmy on the news. In fact, there was a missing children's poster in the book bag, which uh, psychologists have said serial killers and, you know, really sick people take trophies from their victims. So not only did he have the book bag, but he put a missing children's poster in it as well, which he Would have had to have gotten later because we didn't put those for up for maybe a a week after. So she called the police and they went and picked him up immediately. And at first he came up with all these crazy stories. He said he said that he had hit Jimmy with the truck. And he threw the body in the canal because he didn't know what to do. He didn't want to get in trouble Then he blamed the disappearance of my brother on the woman, his employer's son, and said it had something to do with him. But eventually he broke down and he told the truth. And the truth was what I shared with you. And they eventually got him to lead the police, lead them to my brother's body, which he had dismembered and put in flower pots with cement and this was all on this woman's property so that event crushed me and some people some people ask like well did, were you suicidal or did you feel like killing yourself and when when people ask that it's like you're talking about a depressed person I was so crushed from that experience. I don't. I didn't have the energy to do anything to myself, and uh, I felt like I felt like I was already dead. And in a way, I believe that was true. But, uh, and it got really bad. That was when I was nineteen, and I told you the story—the three-month the three-month search for my brother and how we found out what happened to him and when when his murder was caught. But it was a year later, almost a year later when the trial started, that when I, I really started to feel it. At first, you're just in shock. And if you've ever been through something traumatic, you know what I'm talking about. It doesn't hit you right away. Maybe you cry. Maybe you feel bad, but it doesn't hit you. And then over the weeks, over the months, it starts to seep in and you start to think about, really really feel what you've just been through. And so a a year later when the trial started and I had to be deposed by uh, the defense attorney and that's when it really hit me. I had dropped out of school during that time. I mean, I didn't drop out. I didn't call up like we had to in those days and cancel the courses via the phone. Now I'm sure it's all online, but it, I just didn't go to school anymore. I just stopped and I didn't eat much and I was just rotting away all by myself. And uh, the <laughs> life was just, I, I thought I had known what hell was before, but this was a different level. So what <laughs> So I started the journey to putting myself back together. And it, the, the real catalyst to that was a friend of mine and my sister who were in Gainesville going to school at the time, going to University of Florida, came to visit. They were in town and they came to visit me and they saw me just slowly self-destructing. And they got me to move up there with them. And if that hadn't happened... I, I think I would have just died in, in that apartment one day just from not eating or, you know, just rotting away. But they, they came, they found me, they took me up north and uh, it, it was a tough road. I mean, I still, I tried going back to school. The new environment was really helpful. I was away from Miami. I was away from the apartment that I lived in uh, when the, the, FBI were coming over. So I had, I was away from all of that, that energy and, and those, uh, memories. And I was in this new environment, but I had a hard time. I couldn't concentrate in school. I ended up dropping out again. I, I tried working some shitty jobs and I just couldn't bring myself to do it. My friend ended up getting really frustrated with me. And he's still a guy who I'm friends with today, 20 years later. And, uh, but so so I ended up leaving because I knew Gainesville wasn't right. Going to school and working up there just wasn't going to happen. Came back to Miami in Miami Beach. That's where my parents were living. They said, you can stay here for a couple of days and you need to leave. I ended up getting a job. Uh I, I had to hustle. I, I had kind of gotten to the point where I was still unhappy. I was still, you know, going through my stuff. But I was but getting that. Breathing room, having that space away from that environment where I was just rotting away uh, helped me get to the point where I could at least start thinking, hey, listen, I need to survive here. I need to get a job. I need to get a place to live. So I uh, ended up finding this job uh, working in receiverships and bankruptcies. And I worked in a building in a very bad part of town called Overtown in Miami. It's the type of place where if you ever heard about a tourist coming to Miami and disappearing or getting shot or getting robbed, that was the type of place Overtown was at the time. So I worked there and I also worked in a luxury building in Miami Beach. And it the job sucked, but I did get the perk of living in that luxury building. So after coming home from this, this job that I hated, I would go to the gym to blow off steam and and uh, you know work out my body and, and try to build up my health again, and, and it was working. And in that gym, I met some personal trainers. They were going to work in gym clothes. They were helping people with their body and through exercise and nutrition, and they were getting paid good money for it. So on a whim, I quit my job. I got my personal trainer certification and got hired at the first place I got interviewed at. And that place didn't even want me to train people for two years. But I was so pumped up about the direction my life was going. I was so happy to be feeling good again, feeling joy again, feeling like, hey, I'm I'm going in the right direction now. I'm going, going up. I would grab people off the floor and show them exercises and take them through workouts, show them how to get better results to the point where someone must have went up to my boss and told him something. And within a couple months, he's like, listen, normally we don't do this, but... We want you to start training people. Usually it's two years, but you've shown that you're you're knowledgeable and you're passionate about doing this. And you know, we want you to start training people. And that was the start of my new life. And that turned into building up my body and then moving on from that and and trying to reach the next level. Because I really do believe health and fitness is the foundation. I hope we'll talk. Uh, a little bit about that, but then I started to notice well, there's relationships well there's business the the health and fitness is great. you need to take care of yourself, but it needs to be integrated into the bigger picture of what your life is, and so that's what I started doing and uh, I've been going in that direction ever since, and I've had lots of ups and downs, but I'm steadily moving up, and I've gotten to the place where, where what what I shared at the beginning training. All these high performance people are really evolving my business from something that's just about working out in the gym and, and some nutrition advice to something that incorporates mindset, how to approach life, how to how to create a life that you truly love and and how to transform yourself in every way, not just physically, but also psychologically and even spiritually. And so that that is uh <laughs> I don't want to say that's the long story short because it sounded pretty long, but that's how I got to where I am today.
0: Damn. <laughs> uh, wow.
6: Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support, 100% online Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for twenty percent off your first purchase.
4: Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans.
0: So, I want to start, uh, obviously, at the very beginning of this, uh, which you should expect since you've heard our interviews. One of the things that I want to start with is learning to resolve our losses and our grief. Uh, You've gone through two incredibly traumatic losses in your life. One, you know, with a mother who, by all accounts, wasn't what you had expected from a maternal influence in your life, and then a brother who was taken from you at way too young of an age. And the question that raises for me is how in our own lives do we start to come to terms with grief and loss and start to resolve it so that we're not held captive by it?
2: That is a great question and something that I've thought a lot about and The answer has to do first with how, of what we are. I heard an interview the other day with uh, Dr. John Gray, and he was talking about how people who've, parents who have lost a child, have such a hard time getting past it because every time they go back and they think about the memory, it actually causes neurochemical changes in our brain that keep us addicted to that thought. So you could say that people who live that tragedy over and over and over are addicted. The thoughts that they think cause a change in their brain chemistry that reward that type of behavior. So I think for me, the first thing is You have to take care of your body. That has to be the priority because if you are not taking care of yourself, if you're not sleeping right, if you're not nourishing your body with the nutrients it needs, if you're not nourishing your body with exercise, then you can guarantee that you are at, at best fighting an uphill battle that is going to be such a struggle. And at worst, you're never going to get past it. And as important as the psychological stuff, which we'll talk about in a second, is this stuff is the foundation. So if you don't take care of yourself with your sleep, with your nutrition, if you're not getting exercise, if you're not getting physical challenge in some type of way, You're, like I said, at best fighting an uphill battle that is going to be such a struggle or you will never get past it. So that's the first. And that's the thing that I think, Srini, that personal development gurus don't tell people. You can think, you can say to yourself, hey, be confident. Hey, just just get over this. Hey, let's move on in life. But if you don't put into the, if you don't, deal with the physiological foundation of what you are, this human machine, you are going to be struggling. So that's number one. Number two is to understand the perspective. People, if you, what I feel, Srini, is people who have been through tough things like myself or maybe even something worse or even not as bad, if you get caught up psychologically on those thoughts and let it dictate the rest of your life, if you were a victim to it, then you are a person who is very self-indulgent and self-centered because it is horrible what happened to you. Whether if you, you've you lost a parent, uh, which we will all lose a parent of eventually, and that it's supposed to be that way. And I've seen that crush people. And uh, I've been through that myself, but it was at a younger age. It it was different. But I do have my dad left and uh, I'm ready for it. So understanding the perspective that loss is a part of life and that your situation, however you may feel about it, however sad you may feel, however however much woe you may feel because you think about what you are going through. Understand that it's shared by so many people in the world and that if you're listening to this right now on iTunes or wherever you listen to this in your car, that you are living better than the majority of the world and people have to deal with horrible things Every day, things that in our western world we it 's just incomprehensible, and we hear it on the news, but we 're like, oh yeah, that's terrible, all those murders going on in Africa and you know killing the children yeah that's horrible it's horrible, and then you go back to your normal day and, and you don 't think about it you don 't embody that you don 't really empathize with those people and understand that 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 people in general are going through some tough stuff in life. And that's helped me. And another part is that there is always something good that can come from those situations. As terrible as what I've been through with my brother, with my mother, and and I didn't mention that my sister committed suicide three years ago. She put a gun in her mouth and pulled the trigger. Uh, You know, so those three terrible losses there is always something to be learned there is always a way to take that energy because that's what it is that you feel when you've been through something like that it's energy and you may feel it as anxiety you may feel it as grief you may feel it as anger but what you can do with that energy is you can't you can't get rid of it right but you can redirect it. And what I've done is I've redirected, I don't want to say all because I still have anger, I still have sadness, uh, but I've redirected the majority of that energy into creation, into serving other people, into being an example for other people to look to. Because I think also in our culture, we celebrate, in a way, the, the negativity. Oh, did you see what happened on the news today? Oh, it's just horrible. We celebrate it. And I don't mean in a happy way, but we, we indulge in it. And it's because of the way our brain is wired. And I'll go back to that. If you read the book Abundance by Peter Diamandis and Stephen Kotler, they go into how our brains have a negativity bias, We are wired to pay attention to that for evolutionary reasons. And if you can't shift your perspective, you will be crushed by it. So those are the three things that I would say. You have to take care of your body, your vessel. There is a way that your body works. Best, Just like your car needs gas, it needs to be cleaned, it needs new oil. You can't just not put oil in your car and you expect it to run well. And I believe the, the amount of depression, the amount of unhappiness is in part in, in the world, in, in the Western world in particular, because other people are fighting for survival and probably not thinking about you know the spiritual uh, uh, what does what my life mean question. You know they're fighting for survival, but us, part of that is caused by the 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 uh, environment, the food, the way we treat our physical bodies. So taking care of that, and also understanding the perspective, understanding the past of human history, as well as the things that are going on now, good and bad, and then three, being able to redirect that energy that you feel, that anxiety, that anger, that sadness into into. Creating something positive, especially for other people. And uh, that's what I'd say hmm. for people to focus on.
0: Wow. So one of the questions that's brought up for me um, as I've listened to you tell this story it was about the relativity of grief, right? And how one person can experience something that's nowhere as near as traumatic, as what you've been through and still be consumed by an insane amount of grief. And what I'm interested in uh, is how you start to break the addiction of the thought patterns that keep replaying when you're completely consumed by grief because it seems like it's all you can think about for 24 hours a day, regardless of whatever your loss is.
2: Amazing question. And what I'd say especially to the, if there's any parents out there is it starts with you. And one of the reasons that I feel people like I, I mentioned a friend who had a tough time with his dad and ended up leaving and coming as far away from his dad as possible. And then when his dad got sick and passed away, it basically crushed him. um, And, He's never recovered from it. And this we're talking decade, you know, over a decade later, he just hasn't recovered from it. And specifically, that looks like him being very overweight, him being uh, an alcoholic, him being stuck in a job that he doesn't feel appreciated in, that he actually performs at such a high level in, but he doesn't get the appreciation verbally or financially from doing it. And so that's what I'd start with is teach your kids resiliency. Get your kids to understand that it starts – that life isn't fair and that there is loss and that there is a way to be powerful and a way to not ever – there's not going to be a way to, to, to just avoid grief it's impossible. Okay. <laughs> or, or you're a psychopath who doesn't have feelings. You are going to feel sadness. You're going to feel, uh, you're going to feel happy. You're going to feel elated. You're going to feel suffering. You're going to feel depressed. And, and I don't like to use the word depressed because I, I really feel like it's, uh, uh, you know, people who are depressed, is a really uh, a severe chemical thing that that doesn't have anything to do with what they're necessarily going through in their uh, in their life, but to to tell them to get them ready uh we 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 take our kids and we we just coddle them and coddle them from all the the toughness and harshness out there, and just want them to believe that the world is nice uh, a a great place and that you know, you won't ever get cheated on in a relationship or you won't ever experience physical pain. And while most parents think they're doing that out of love, you're actually doing it out of your own selfish need to to avoid seeing your child in pain. And if you really love them, you will let them experience the ups, the downs, and you will prepare them and give them the context to look at their experiences, to understand their experiences. And I know that was maybe not the answer that uh, you were expecting or anyone listening was expecting, but it really starts there. Because now what you're asking, Serene, is how do you get a person who wasn't properly prepared to go through life? Because that's what it is. That's what you're basically asking. Mm -hmm. Because we'll all go through the loss of parents if we live long enough. We'll all go through uh, trials and tribulations with our relationships. And we need to understand that that's part of it. So if you're already in a place where you weren't set up by your parents, then what I would say is uh, you have to break the pattern. You have to break the habit of what you're in. And, like I mentioned, when I left my environment, when I was rotting away uh, and my 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 sister and my friend came and rescued me, that broke that pattern before I was just going to doing whatever I was doing and hanging out at home. I had a pattern that I was doing. I had habits, and I couldn't break them on my own, so finding a way to break the patterns and if you have a coach or a mentor or Uh, uh, someone who really cares about you, a friend or a family member um, to help you do that. But you also have to be willing. And you can, what I want someone to understand by listening to this, because Serene, I always worry like someone's going to say, well, you know, maybe you're Mr. Super Genetics or you're just wired to to get past this stuff. And, you know, you're different than me. I mean, there may be, we're all different, but I am not special by any means. I I am, I have no special talents that I was born with. I'm genetically average, but what I do have is a lot of skills that I've spent a lot of time, uh, building and what that could look like in your life. If you're going through something tough is you look for the challenge, uh, go, go play a musical instrument, find some way of, of, Of directing that that energy in a way that's creative. It could be in music, like I just said. That's something that I've done. Uh, I played in bands, and and it was a great release. There's something about the creation of music that is just cathartic. Uh, For me also, I believe everybody should experience martial arts. Uh, There's nothing like that primal feeling of dealing with a physical threat that will make you more, t- more in tune uh, to what you are, how you feel, and also it puts. There's a great saying in Fight Club, in the movie Fight Club, that after fighting, the volume on everything in life is turned down. And what that means to me is that we live in a world where we we over uh, we overestimate the uh, the little stressors that we have in our lives someone cuts us off on traffic we can't shut up about it for the rest of the day and we need to experience some form of stress in a way that builds us up so that little stressors all of a sudden become uh we we look at them for what they actually are which is little um so and Srini, you surf You go running. We had that conversation when you were on my podcast. Mm -hmm. Things like that are a way of redirecting that energy. Doing this podcast interview is a way for me to redirect that negative energy into something positive. The same with my podcast. What you need to do is find your own way. Maybe take a comedy improv class, which I'm actually doing right now maybe doing some type of personal development seminar, something to upgrade your software. Because when, to use the computer analogy, we have our hardware that needs to be taken care of with sleep, nutrition, stress management, uh, exercise. But you have the software. And if you are in a point where you're like, I hate my life, uh, you know, that my Something terrible happened to me, no matter what the scale, what the degree. And I think that's really important as well because it isn't about the event. Like you mentioned, Srini, it's about the response of the person to the event, right? Like you said, someone can go through something uh, that some people may say is not a big deal, maybe a breakup, with a girl, which is very common with, with guy or with guys, or, or maybe a woman had a terrible relationship with a man and they're crushed by it. And some people are like, man, get it together. It's not about that. It's about the, the neurochemical, the emotions that get stimulated by that event. That's what matters the most. And by, and by doing things that push you outside your comfort zone, that make you grow as a person That is how you get past that level of being stuck in and addicted to your suffering.
0: Wow. All right. Let's shift gears a little bit. Uh, One of the things that's really, really interesting to me is that your circumstances didn't become your identity. And this is fresh on my mind uh, for a couple of reasons. One, because I'm writing a section of my new book uh, about temporary circumstances not needing to become our permanent identity. But in so many cases, they do. Uh, And I can't take credit for that. That's something that, uh, you know, a a mentor, Greg Hartle, uh, really, really kind of drilled into my head. And I'm interested in how one starts to make a radical identity shift. Uh, so that their circumstances don 't become their identity, because clearly you 've done that
2: yes, and another great question and i 'll tell you, after I had gone through all that stuff I talked about and I was doing the personal training i had I had people who were part of the media come up to me and say, "Hey, do you want to do this this special? I could interview you about how you 're doing." With uh, you know, a few years later, after the the trial and the you know your brother and and I said no. And the reason was is because I didn't want to be defined. I didn't want my identity to be defined, not just in my mind, but in other people's minds. That oh, that's Jimmy brother, Jimmy Rice's brother. And I went through a period where I very consciously decided that I would create my own identity. And in part, it got that started because the other way was not making me happy. And I think sometimes people get addicted to that identity, that identity of really victimization. And it's, I don't want to say it's... uh something that they like but it's something that's comfortable and some people get addicted to the attention they get from that which I could easily do every every time someone talks to me I could open up my mouth about my brother and tell him the story and I could have him in tears I don't do that what I do is I've consciously chosen to create my own life I consciously made decisions to become a different type of person. And that goes back to what I was talking about before you asked that question. You have to very consciously go after pushing yourself to the next level and becoming the person who no longer is a victim to whatever you've been through. And that is what will get you past that. Is what you need to do uh, because otherwise it's just by default and I'll tell you why I think that happens is because we're wired for it we're wired to get addicted to that suffering we're wired for it and if you fall into that it's the same reason I believe that people get overweight we can't control ourselves because it's the wiring We come from an environment thousands and thousands and thousands of years ago where food was not abundant. But now we got a fast food joint and convenient stores and and, uh, vending machines everywhere. So our natural instinct is to eat. And I believe our natural instinct is to get addicted uh, addicted to that event. And that's why I love this new... Wave of consciousness that's been slowly building up and and, uh, uh, and expanding exponentially that you can upgrade your software i e your identity by choosing to do so and you can read books to do that you can have experiences to do that you can listen to podcasts in fact if you listen To this podcast, you are actively engaged in that already because most of, at least the U.S., is glued to Fox News or CNN or MSNBC or whatever is out there. And they're talking all about the same things. But you are listening to something to help you grow beyond that that conversation that the majority of other people are having. And that you have to do it consciously. That was a really long explanation, but the answer is, you have to make a decision to do it. You have to make a choice, and everything is a choice. And if you're choosing to be a victim, then you can choose not to be a victim. And the question is, how do you do that? And I, and we have already covered it in what I said.
0: Wow, okay, so I wanna shift gears a bit again. And now I want to start talking about this whole idea of integrating this link between physiology and psychology holistically into your life. But I want to talk about it through the lens of the high-performance individuals that you've had the chance to work with. Because most of us, we read about these people, uh, you know, we hear about them, but we don't get the level of intimacy that you have with the people like Richard Branson, the people like Robert Downey Jr., people who are you know masters of their craft by almost all accounts. So I'm really interested in hearing your perspective on this.
2: Oh man, I love that you asked this question, Srini. It's something that I've been wanting to share with people. I try to share with people. And the fact is that, and we're talking, like you said, high performance individuals. We're not talking about trust fund babies who, uh, you know, a few generations ago, great, great granddaddy, uh, you know, started a business and now they just get a million dollars in their their bank account every month to go uh, party hard, which uh, I know those people too, but I I, I won't work with them. Uh, so high performance individuals, I think one thing that a lot of people are not understanding is that these people are different types of people, and I think in business people are looking for strategies, they're looking for tactics, they're looking for, they're looking for something externally. And that is important because you need strategy, you need tactics, you need to know what to do. But the biggest shift you could ever make to becoming a high-performance individual is by who you are. And it uh, kind of comes back to your identity question. These are people who have very consciously chosen to do what they do. They took the risk and uh, I have I'll, I'll tell you some stories. I got one client lives in a, in the most exclusive building in Miami Beach. It's a pain in the ass to deal with the security there. They make me go in through the the, the service entrance and uh, you know he's he, he's a very good guy, but anyway. He came from a family with not a lot of money, but he made a decision to figure out how to create this business that he's actually getting ready to sell. And um, they do that through, I would think the key, if I had to impart anything, is the key to success is in what you do every day. And these are people who value their health more than the average person. saying so, that goes back to what I said before, what I've said many times in this interview. They all hire me because they know that health is of the utmost importance if they want to deal with the level of stress that they have to deal with, if they want to... Uh, Perform at their highest, and what do most unsuccessful people do? Oh, I'm too busy to work out. Well, I, I just I don't I don't have time to work out. I'm too busy. Who has time for that? P- these people make it a priority to do that. That's why they hire me. And that's one, two, um, and this is specifically financial. But they understand how to spend money. So. I have one client. This is another client. He's got a Ferrari collection. He's got, I think, five or six Ferraris, or he just sold one. Or He's got a bunch of them. And some people may think, wow, what a douche. This guy just has a bunch of Ferraris. Who does he think he is? You know, I when I get money, I put it in the bank account, uh, which actually a lot of people don't do. They're in debt and they buy a bunch of crap. But... Uh, to, to go back to his example, he, uh, yeah, the, the Ferraris, it seems opulent, but those are investments because the Ferraris he's chosen to buy actually appreciate every year. And that's a huge, that was a huge mindset shift for me. It's like, oh, he's buying these Hublot watches and these Ferraris and all this stuff because money only makes 1% if you throw it in the bank with with entrance levels where they are they're looking for a lot more of a return on their cash and one thing that they they do that i think a lot of people uh get thrown off by it's like man some of the sometimes the people with the most money seem the the cheapest and it's not that and in fact if you read the book the millionaire next door you'll see that it's a very very common trait the extent that it came up in their in uh, you know these two guys statistical analysis of the behaviors of high net worth individuals and so they understand where to put their money and they don't spend money on things that don't have value that don't appreciate and uh, that that's a huge mindset shift and it's financial in nature. Another thing is that they know, that no matter what happens, they will deal with it. And my client told me that one day, he said, "Man, you know, I, I, when I was building my company, and, and he had his company is a half a billion dollar company now, and he he said, and it's a software company and probably something you you'd never ever heard of, but uh uh, it, he said he's like you know when I was building my company, I was on the phone every week making." sales, he was on the phone personally making sales to make sure he could pay everybody. And he lived very, very frugally uh, up into that point. Uh, I mean, during that that time, he put his money in the business. He put his effort in the business. He did not go out and uh, buy a brand new car and he, he didn't spend his money frivolously like so many people do he and he put he had all the risk on him and he did whatever it took to make things happen and i think it, it, people get thrown off by uh by a little bit of failure or a little bit of challenge and th- these are all people who have gone through that process persevered and came out on top simply because they did not give up uh, that's another one and and he, uh, he also said something really interesting because we were talking about Spartacus. And he's like, man, in my company, I am not, I don't want to be the Roman Empire. The reason is because if you're a general and you're leading an army, uh, the Roman army, there's really no allegiance there. It's There is allegiance to the country, but you'll get a lot of deserters. He's like, I want to be, I want to lead a group of gladiators. People that would die on the, the, the battlefield for me. I mean, it's kind of extreme analogy in business, mm-hmm. but uh, uh, he he has that type of relationship. He he tries to foster that type of relationship with his people. Uh, another thing from that same individual that is, is pretty interesting, and you know, uh, he, he's done so many things. He even did a deal recently where. He made these two startup guys millionaires because they sold their uh, they sold their company, I guess, to Twitter. And he was saying that um, you that that the average person just isn't that ambitious, right? They're not willing to do what it takes, and they're not willing to put in the work to figure out what it takes than to do the actual work that it takes. And I'm sure if if anyone's listening to this and knows about startups, uh, most of them do not turn out to be a success story like that. So it comes down to you have to be able to do what it takes. You have to have perseverance. You have to know what to do. You have to figure it out. And that could be from mentorship which I'm, I haven't had that conversation with these guys, although now that I'm talking about it here, there will be some of the next questions I ask uh, some of these uh, uh, people uh, that I train. But it, it really comes down to kind of simple things that are more complex when you apply them, but it it's, has to do with the mindset that they have. And not a lot more, to be honest,
0: It's interesting. Uh, as I'm listening to you talk about these people, uh, I can't help but think of a lot of the things that Simon Sinek wrote about in his latest book, Leaders Eat Last. Um, you know, these people put themselves or put their company and, and the people in the company before themselves almost always. And even, you know, the, the, he, one of the really interesting lessons he shares is from the Marines, where the senior uh, sort of officers in the Marines actually eat last, uh, the, the, the junior people actually are served first.
2: Yeah, um, I'm familiar with Simon's work. I haven't started uh, uh, eaters. Leaders eat last first, but I've I've watched his TED talk and I really enjoy it. And uh, I think that there are a group. I think that is more the new school of entrepreneurs. Uh, and I'll tell you, I've trained some guys in the past who didn't have that philosophy. And I think this is a, a, an important lesson as well. And those people are starting to lose their top people to those people who have that philosophy of eat, leaders eat last. They want to leave uh, uh, that, that stale company they've been a part of to be part of something, even if they're not gonna get paid as much. I've heard conversations. It's like, man, what's going on today? Oh, well, one of my top guys wants to leave to this new uh, company. You know, they're, 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 they have that mentality. And uh, I, you know, so I, I don't know. Uh, I don't know if I've had anybody who I haven't had that conversation yet. And you know what, Serena, I'll, I'll ask. I'll bring exact that exactly up, and I'll I'll, I'll ask next time I'm, I'm with them. But I'll tell you the one thing is the guys who have stayed stagnant and haven't evolved with this new consciousness, this new approach. To things. Although, you know, like you said, Apple has been doing that for a while, and a lot of other uh, uh, companies have, uh, you know, maybe uh, put other things first. They, they start with the why, and uh, they're losing out to these companies who do that. The guys who are, are stuck in the past are losing out to these companies who live uh, by this new philosophy.
0: Hmm. Well, Ted, uh, I have to say this has been really, really, really uh, touching, uh, uh, eye-opening, thought-provoking as I expected it would be. So I want to wrap with uh, my final question. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable?
2: I'm going to give a two-part answer. And I was thinking about this a lot because I know you ask it to everyone. Uh, The first part is to be truly, authentically, unapologetically yourself and stop trying to please everybody. Uh, And of course, be respectful, but don't be afraid to put yourself out there. And I think what makes carbon copies is that fear of our own voice. And the second part, which is a little more tactical, is even though you may be unmistakable, in your ideas, in, in your actions, in uh, some of the things that you want to accomplish. If you can't clearly communicate them, then they're not going to be heard. So a practical tip that I can say is to work on your communication. Take comedy improv classes, take voice coaching lessons, take Toastmasters, do interviews Refine what refine your communication to the point where you understand communicating is a skill and it's something that you have to practice and something that you have to hone. And when you're a master of it, you can share all that, uh, all those genius ideas and concepts that you have, but you need to be able to communicate them effectively. So that's what I want to leave you with.
0: Awesome. Well, this has been great, Dad. Uh I really appreciate you taking the time to join us and uh, really share such a, a deep story with us. This has been phenomenal. Serini,
2: it's been an honor and a pleasure. Thank you, my man. Yeah,
0: and for everybody listening, we'll wrap the show with that. If you like what you heard, the greatest compliment you could give us is to share the show with a friend and let people know what you think by leaving a review on iTunes. Thanks for listening to The Unmistakable Creative.